Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, fallout over the spy balloon is growing. A little more than a week after the U.S. shot down a large balloon it says China was using to spy on American military sites, China's foreign ministry accused the U.S. of flying at least 10 surveillance balloons in its airspace during the past year, a charge the White House denies. The events are straining an already complicated relationship between the two most powerful nations in the world. And this hour, we'll look at how. Join us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A week after the U.S. shot down a balloon it said China was using to spy on American military sites, Three more flying objects were shot down over the weekend. White House officials said yesterday the military has not yet identified who launched those objects. Also yesterday, China accused the U.S. of flying spy balloons in its airspace, which the U.S. denies. New York Times diplomatic correspondent Edward Wong writes the spying programs of both countries are becoming a, quote, revived point of tension in a relationship that is caught in a downward spiral. We look at why this hour, and joining me first is Edward Wong. Welcome to Forum. Hi, thanks for having me. I wanted to ask you first about the three objects shot down just this past weekend over Alaska, Canada's Yukon Territory, and Michigan. What's the Biden administration saying so far about those? Well, they say they're going to collect the debris and they will examine it. They're not calling them balloons at the moment, similar to the way they described the Chinese spy balloon that um, arrived in the U.S. earlier. Um, They do say these objects share some characteristics. For example, they seem to be moving with the winds. They didn't have any means of propulsion, um, apparently, and there were no people in them. Um, The third object, the one they shot down over Lake Huron um, on the Michigan-Canadian border. They described that as an octagonal object with strings attached to it. As you report, up until now, we've rarely fired on any of these sort of flying objects. Why not? Is that because we didn't know about them? Um, There's some theories about that. Uh, I mean, one thing is they are picking up more of these objects right now on the radars, and that's because since the episode of the spy balloon, the Pentagon has asked 
um, the radar operators to loosen the filters on the radars in order to pick up more objects. So they're picking up a lot more objects. Um, and, and then I think they're being more proactive in engaging with these objects because of uh, what happened with the spy balloon. So, um, so I think there's a combination of factors going on there. Is it possible that these might be nothing, uh, that these could be for scientific research purposes or weather balloons or so on? That could be possible. Um, yesterday we heard um, John Kirby say at the White House press briefing that there are a ton of objects flying at this altitude in these zones. And they range from totally innocent uh, weather research instruments, as you point out, to civilian aircraft, to military aircraft. And it's unclear what these could be right now. You mentioned that the White House has been careful not to call it a balloon. It also seems like they've been really cautious about making sure that they're not connecting these most recent objects with the Chinese surveillance balloon or the suspected surveillance balloon from China. Why is that? Why are they not calling it a balloon? Why are they really being cautious about making any connections at this point? Uh, it would be hugely, it would be um, a very big diplomatic deal if these had been sent from China, especially in the aftermath of what happened with the spy balloon. So I think they are being cautious on linking these to any foreign nation until they identify what they actually are. If uh, they find that these were from China, of course, that would cause a huge surge in tensions. Um, there would be a lot of friction between the two nations. They would um, demand certain things from China. Uh, and so I think they're, they're, they just want to make sure that they take all the proper measures to ascertain what it is before accusing any nation of sending these over. We're talking with Edward Wong, diplomatic correspondent for the New York Times. Yesterday, a spokesperson for China's foreign ministry accused the U.S. of running its own surveillance balloons in China's airspace. First, can you remind us what what he accused the U.S. of doing? He said that the U.S. Um, he made some broad comments about the U.S. saying that it ran more espionage or spy operations than any country, other country in the world. He said that it collected data from private citizens. Um, and then he said that the U.S. had sent 10 balloons that had illegally entered China since last year. Um, he was very specific about the number of balloons. He didn't exactly say they were spy balloons. He just said 10 balloons. Um, and he said Chinese airspace. Uh, now, China has a very broad definition of what it considers its airspace because it makes claims to these huge um, sections of territory around it, including Taiwan and the South China Sea, that many other nations do not consider part of China. So um, today he was asked uh, what exactly he considers Chinese airspace, and he dodged that question. So they mm -hmm. could be engaging some wordplay here because we do know that, that the U.S. does operate surveillance and reconnaissance aircraft um, in the areas around China, in the Taiwan Strait or in the South China Sea. Um, but uh, Kirby was very insistent at the White House briefing that the U.S. has not sent any spy craft into Chinese airspace, as far as he knows. Yes, they have vehemently denied that. Were you surprised by that uh, accusation from Wang Wenbin, or 
Is that something that you see as part of the strategy on China's side frequently when when its back is up against a wall a bit like it is with this spy balloon? Um, China does often point out uh, other flawed policies in its view that other countries do, especially the United States. Um, you know, some of what uh, Wang said were not inaccurate. The U.S. Is, does do a lot of spying activities around the world. Um, we know that from various reporting over the decades um, and leaks like the ones from Edward Snowden. So uh, that's actually not an inaccurate statement. Um, I think the main question that people are wondering at this point is his one assertion about 10 uh, U.S. balloons illegally entering Chinese airspace and what exactly that means, whether that's made up or whether there is some truth to that. Given the fact that we do run extensive espionage operations against China and China runs extensive surveillance and espionage operations against us, why is the balloon striking such a nerve on both sides? What's unusual about it? Um, I mean, there are a few things that uh, were unusual about this episode. Um, first, it uh, it um, came into the public attention on the eve of a trip to Beijing by the U.S. Secretary of State, Tony Blinken. So that immediately caused a diplomatic crisis. Um, and it also lingered in the U.S. over the continental U.S. much longer than any other balloon that the U.S. government had observed before. We didn't know about this Chinese balloon program before this whole episode. And then once it emerged, a single episode emerged, and the U.S. government publicly said that they have been observing this balloon program from China for a couple of years now, um, and that there had been previous entries of balloons into the U.S. in once, at least once early in the Biden administration, uh, three times in the Trump administration, as they say, um, at the time, they were not uh, known to be balloon intrusions. Um, and in all those instances, they only skirted the U.S. They entered somewhere around the um, continental U.S. borders briefly and then went back out again, which was not the case in this instance. Yes, there's something about sort of entering our airspace. You're right, that, that makes it feel right. like a bit more of a direct provocation. You right. also Lincoln and others yeah, have said it's a vile... Oh, yeah, just to used a phrase that the U.S. has said. They, they've said repeatedly it's a violation of U.S. sovereignty. So they're, they're, very, they're emphasizing this violation of sovereignty aspect. Um, and in that case, I think that this makes it a bit different than other um, forms of espionage. And they're saying that other, they've seen this happening with other nations, these Chinese balloons entering the airspace of other nations and violating their sovereignty. So we now have this this sort of combative exchange between the two countries. And uh, in your piece that you co-wrote, the the relationship is being described as being caught in a downward spiral. Can you talk a little bit more about why that feels like the right way to describe it and and what's been contributing to that that we haven't yet touched on? Uh, I mean, this has been going on for years. The relationship between two nations is at one of the worst points in decades. Hmm. And it, um, I mean, it began, I mean, I would say that the tensions really started flaring um, probably during the Trump administration um, because uh, Trump and some of his associates 
began taking a harder line against China on various policy issues, whether it was on trade or on um, incursions in the South China Sea by the Chinese military or on uh, espionage and China's use of technology, for example. So, um, so there was a very heated rhetoric between the two nations in the Trump administration. At the same time, um, the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, was pushing much harder policies all across the board. Um, as I mentioned, the South China Sea, um, in other areas around China, it was claim, trying to claim more territory. Uh, it was um, rhetorically denouncing the U.S. a lot more in diplomatic exchanges in what was known as wolf warrior diplomacy. So China was really coming out in a much more offensive um, manner uh, against the United States during this time, too. And so the relationship really spiraled downward. And then during the Biden administration, it's continuing in that trajectory because uh, Biden has taken the same approach to China in general that many of Trump's aides did. Uh, and uh, Xi is still the leader in China, and he has been consolidating his autocratic power in China. Right. And, uh, but it is incredible when, when we consider at the same time just how intertwined we are with trade and so on. We just have 30 seconds or so, Edward Wong, but do you want to just comment a little bit about what makes our relationship so complicated, how intertwined China and the U.S. are? Sure. They're still the two um, largest economies in the world. There are huge trade partners to trade. Um, U.S. imports from China have actually been increasing in the last few years, despite uh, Trump boasting that he cut a great trade deal with China, imposing tariffs on Chinese goods. So the economic relationship is very intertwined. It's, it's growing more intertwined in some ways, um, less in other ways. Um, so this is nothing like the Cold War that the U.S., had with the Soviet Union. In that relationship, economy and trade was a very small part of it. Here, it's a huge part, and it's hard to see where the relationship goes from here. Yeah. Edward Wong, diplomatic correspondent for the New York Times. Thank you. More Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Tomorrow, we'll look at an effort to get California to require schools to screen for dyslexia. We're one of only 10 states in the U.S. that doesn't. Today, we're talking about fallout from the spy balloon incident. And joining me now to talk about 
what it's revealing about the state and complexity of U.S.-China relations, is Nesan Mabubi, research scholar for the Center for the Study of Contemporary China at the University of Pennsylvania, where he also hosts a podcast on Chinese politics, economics, law, and society. Nesan Mabubi, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Delighted to be here. I'd love to just get your thoughts on how you interpret the spy balloon and the controversy surrounding it. Do you think it was deliberate on China's part or a mistake, as some have suggested? On that particular question, I think my own view probably matches that of a lot of other China watchers in that we don't think it's very plausible that the central leadership or Xi Jinping himself purposefully wanted to do something really provocative right on the eve of this diplomatic visit by Secretary Blinken that I think they were anticipating as potentially uh, moving the relationship in a more positive direction. So I don't think that that is likely. Of course, it's impossible to say for sure. What seems pretty likely is that this was some kind of a program with both civilian and military dimensions that in its genesis had to have been approved by the central leadership and perhaps Xi Jinping himself. But the particular timing and trajectory of this balloon was not something that they necessarily signed off on and could have been entirely a mistake. Whoever was in charge of sending this balloon um, made a mistake or maybe the balloon went off course um, and then that brought us to where we are today. When you say timing, Anthony Blinken was going to meet um, with Xi about all kinds of things when the balloon incident jeopardized that meeting. Uh, can you just give us a sense of what was going to be discussed? What was, in fact, delayed, at least in terms of talks? Well, the first thing to say is that as uh, Ed Wong uh, just uh, relayed on your air a little earlier, U.S.-China relations have been uh, in a downward spiral um, accelerating over the past few years, especially since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's hard to overstate how much uh, things seemed finally to be stabilizing just in the past few months since Presidents Biden and Xi met in person on the sidelines of the uh, G20 meeting in Bali. Mm. So there was this sense that um, both sides recognized that the relationship's downward spiral uh, was getting too intense and that they wanted on both sides to set guardrails. Um, both sides, I think, still want to compete and compete vigorously, but keep it from uh, descending into outright conflict. Um, there were certainly signals on the Chinese side in terms of tamping down some of the more aggressive, um, what, what Ed uh, referred to as wolf warrior diplomacy um, in, in recent weeks and months. Um, so everything sort of seemed lined up for some kind of more um, positive meeting um, than we've seen between the two sides in a while, and certainly much more positive than that meeting uh, between uh, Secretary Blinken and his Chinese counterparts in Alaska at the beginning of the Biden administration. Now, as to what exactly they were going to achieve, I think hopes were quite modest. Um, no one was expecting some major breakthroughs, but it seemed clear that they were going to spend a significant amount of time talking about the war in Ukraine, uh, talking about China's posture towards it, talking about the degree to which China um, is or is not um, helping Russia uh, in more uh, practical ways than just rhetoric, 
Um, certainly, they were going to talk about Taiwan um, because that has become such a flashpoint in the last few years and will continue to be a flashpoint um, given uh, various moves and rhetoric on both sides. Um, I think that they were going to talk about the resumption of people-to-people -people exchange uh, now that China has uh, lifted its zero COVID policy. Um, and that has been such an important ballast in the relationship for the last 40 years. So I think there was a lot of interest on both sides in having especially American students and scholars like myself continue to go to China. And of course, there's many more issues that would have been um, on the agenda. Again, no anticipation of a major breakthrough, but it was a important marker in what seemed to be a mutual desire um, to uh, stabilize the downward spiral of the relationship. Yes, and that meeting you mentioned happened not that long ago, right in November. So as you say, the shift in just the last few months. We're talking with Nason Mabubi, research scholar at the Center for the Study of Contemporary China at the University of Pennsylvania. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What questions do you have about the U.S.'s relationship with China or about the, the recent balloon incident and its fallout? How would you like to see the U.S. handle its relationship going forward? You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You mentioned that one of the likely key talking points, because I know very little was revealed about the substance of the talks ahead of them, was the war, Russia's war on Ukraine. There have been a lot of questions with regard to China's neutrality in that and new new confrontations around the extent to which China is aiding Russia. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that's about? Sure. And, and that landscape, I think, is very much colored by uh, that meeting uh, between uh, President Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin of Russia um, around the time of the Winter Olympics, in which they announced this uh, no limits partnership. That was the language that they used. And it was not long after that, that Russia went ahead and invaded Ukraine. Um, and it sort of seemed as if China may have given some kind of tacit approval. Um, although, of course, there's no way we can know that. And given how badly the war has gone, one would imagine that the Chinese are not particularly happy with having um, sort of tied themselves, at least rhetorically, uh, with Russia. Why did China uh, even have this kind of language with uh, Vladimir Putin before the war? Um, of course, that all relates, I think, first and foremost, to the spiraling U.S.-China tension. Um, I think the Chinese are interested in finding um, various kinds of counterweights to pressure from the U.S. And so from their perspective, this uh, partnership with Russia perhaps made sense. Of course, they also share a very long border with Russia, so they're not inclined, I think, to have a particularly negative relationship with them. But then, of course, the war has gone very badly, and it's hard to say if uh, even Xi Jinping knew that um, Putin was going to invade and invade the way that he did. Um, what that all has meant is that while China has continued to use language that seems at least um, uh, on balance, a little bit more supportive of Russia, uh, they have not seemed to very robustly uh, assist the Russian war effort. Um, so in some ways, they've tried mm. to have it both ways. Rhetorically, um, to still maybe not even still say that language of no limits partnership, um, but if you really kind of 
parsed it, you would say on balance, it still seems a little bit more supportive of Russia, but their actions and the actions of Chinese companies have very much abided by the Western sanctions regime. Um, what I think would have been foremost on the agenda for a meeting between uh, Tony Blinken and um, his counterpart Wang Yi, perhaps even President Xi Jinping, would be for the US to encourage China to continue in that direction, perhaps even tone down its rhetoric a little bit more, um, to continue to withhold support from Russia, um, perhaps then to get more credit from our side um, for the fact that they've withheld support. That certainly would have been on the agenda. What we see now, though, first of all, that conversation hasn't happened, but there are some signs that perhaps China may um, be ramping up a little bit of practical support for Russia. And we know that President Xi has said he's going to go to Russia to meet with Vladimir Putin. So it's a dynamic picture that I think from our side, we would very much want to talk to them about um, whether in that uh, now canceled meeting or perhaps on the sidelines of the Munich Security Conference, um, where both Antony Blinken and Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi will be um, in, a, in a few days. Hmm. Well, let me go to some calls. Frank in San Francisco, you're on. Hi, Frank. Well, I, can, I wanted to comment that I agree uh, with your speaker uh, in regards to uh, China. My thought is that what if this was not intentionally but if it's possible that this is kind of China's little hint to the United States that its house was not in order, uh, you know, given our in involvement in Ukraine, that, wait a minute, no, we have a, a weaknesses in our own defense and perhaps our own political response to a balloon passing over the United States from a foreign country. Hmm. Uh, your thoughts on Frank's point, Nason? Well, so certainly uh, in the last, I guess, it's been about 10 days or so, um, there's been lots of uh, speculation. And um, one line of speculation that I think gained some currency among the China watching community was that perhaps this was intentional on the part of some faction within the military who did want to send some kind of a message, maybe even hmm. a faction that was upset about the moderately improving relationship and wanted to put it back in a negative direction. Um, I I still find it, and I have no, obviously, special insight or information on this, but I find it pretty unlikely that they would not have known that a giant balloon traversing the continental United States and visible from the ground would become a flashpoint in American uh, domestic political discourse, and that that would have a hugely negative effect on this planned meeting. So just if we're going to ascribe some degree of rationality to the top leadership, it's really hard for me to imagine this is what they wanted. But there are people who have speculated that there might be some actors within the system who wanted something like this. And maybe we could give that some credence. I still, on balance, though, end up thinking this was some kind of mistake. Either the timing of the balloon mission or the trajectory of the balloon was not what was intended by whoever was sending this out. If you had to characterize the relationship between the U.S. and China as a metaphor, there's often this sense when we talk about it that there, there is this uh, sort of, you know, not, not that they're playing necessarily three-dimensional chess, but almost like that. Like, <laughs> there is a lot of, of calculation 
um, gamesmanship, so on. I'm just curious if you've ever tried to think about it metaphorically and what you think would be the most appropriate. Well, so I'm looking now at a quote um, by Graham Allison, a professor at Harvard, um, in this uh, long piece uh, by Bob Davis in The Wire, China. And, and Graham Allison writes, um, we're destined, meaning the U.S. and China, we're destined to be the fiercest rivals anyone ever saw, but we're also inseparable conjoined twins. Um, so I think to me that is where my mind lands when I think mm -hmm. of a metaphor. The U.S. and China are in an incredibly complex relationship that does not easily fit within many of the reference points that all of us may have from uh, recent or even longer term history. These are two countries that um, share, and I know some people may not always like to hear this, but they share many similarities uh, in terms of the confidence of the population, in terms of um, you know even some of the values uh, that uh, drive the perspective on innovation um, and in achievement. Um, they're countries that just had a record-setting year of bilateral trade. Um, and at the same time, they're countries that are measuring their own capacities very much against the other. China has been doing that for a long time, and we're starting to do that too and be very mindful of the ways in which China may be catching up to things we care about. So that overall, um, uh, you know, I, I can't improve on Graham Allison's words fiercest rivals anyone ever saw, but also inseparable conjoined twins. Mm. Well, the complications of that relationship are also really clear when we think about what has been happening, uh, the re rhetoric that's been traded around Taiwan, which of course you mentioned was also likely a topic of conversation uh, for Antony Blinken. Could you just talk a little bit about China's posture toward Taiwan and how likely you think it is that China will try to annex Taiwan? Sure. So this is, I think, an incredibly complex issue. I'll do my best um, to uh, convey some main points, some main points uh, accurately. But again, there's going to be a lot of, uh, I think, uh, deep felt uh, opinions about this. Um, we are in a moment now where there are a number of different actors in the U.S., um, and in particular from the U.S. military establishment, who are um, highlighting the threat of military action by China vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan and even suggesting all sorts of different potential dates. Um, most recently, uh, top Air Force General Michael Minahan um, sent an internal memo that then got uh, released to the public um, suggesting that China was, uh, or that he thought that there would be some conflict um, over Taiwan by 2027. Um, or actually, I should say, he said 2025. Uh, the head of the CIA, William Burns, um, in testimony to Congress recently said that uh, President Xi Jinping has ordered the uh, Chinese military to be ready uh, to have the capacity to uh, take Taiwan by force by 2027. Um, at the same time, uh, William Burns said, that um, he does not think that's the same thing as actually ordering them to do it. And he's also quite confident that Xi Jinping um, has noticed how badly the war in Ukraine has gone and um, is somewhat chastened by that. Hmm. All of that is to say that we have all these dates that have been set out um, in various ways by American political actors. But when we actually look at what is the evidence for 
um, this view that China may be about to take Taiwan by force, whatever the date is, 2025, 2027, 2030, most of the evidence has to do with China's military capacity and not anything too much more than that. Now, of course, it's true that China has you know, been uh, more aggressive in its rhetoric lately and in flights that they've sent. Um, and Xi Jinping has said something along the lines of this is an issue that we need to solve. But the rhetoric from Xi Jinping is not all that different from the rhetoric of Chinese leaders for most of the past 40 years. And again, we don't have too much more to base our predictions on other than just their capacity. Now, on the flip side of that, we know that if China were to try to take Taiwan by force, um, it's very likely to spiral into a larger conflict, um, which they can't predict how that would go and could be enormously destabilizing for China itself. So I think a lot of China watchers like myself tend to think that their strong preference would be to uh, keep working incrementally to some kind of reunification, hopefully a peaceful one. And as long as there's nothing that comes from the Taiwanese or the US side that makes them think that that is no longer going to even be theoretically possible, then it's very unlikely they would actually try to use military force in the near future. Again, we're talking with Nason Mabubi, research scholar at the Center for the Study of Contemporary China at the University of Pennsylvania. Nason Mabubi also hosts a podcast on Chinese politics, economics, law, and society. We're talking about the disputes surrounding the spy balloon, what they reveal or symbolize about the state of U.S.-China relations. And we're talking about the issues that define U.S.-China relations frequently. Right now, currently, the war in Ukraine, and also Taiwan. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions about our relationship with China. And if you want to share how you would like to see the U.S. handle it moving forward, either with respect to trade, Taiwan, human rights, Ukraine, and so on, should the U.S. exert more pressure, less given how intertwined we are, email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the state of U.S.-China relations and the issues that define it. 
with Nathan Mabubi, research scholar at the Center for the Study of Contemporary China at University of Pennsylvania. You, our listeners, are also joining the conversation at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org or by posting on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. On the line now, we have Mary Gallagher, professor of political science and director of the International Institute at the University of Michigan. Mary Mary Gallagher, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Just before the break, we were talking about Taiwan, and I was curious what you thought about Xi Jinping's tough talk on Taiwan, especially on whether or not it really serves an important political purpose for him among his own people. Yeah, I think Xi Jinping, like all other Chinese leaders recently have, um, you know, been very clear about the importance of Taiwan and about bringing Taiwan into uh, the PRC at some point. Uh, the U.S. and and I think many people on Taiwan have tended to want to preserve the status quo, which leaves Taiwan's status uh, somewhat ambiguous. And for the PRC, I think the worry has been, and this has I think become more obvious recently that the status quo is not really static. The status quo is changing. Um, Taiwanese people have a stronger Taiwanese identity, so fewer people identifying as as, as being Chinese. Um, the U.S. is showing more support for Taiwan, sending more high-level politicians like Nancy Pelosi and potentially Kevin McCarthy as well. Um, and of course, Taiwanese um, democracy is, is really consolidated. You know, they have a healthy pretty much a kind of two-party system that has changed power every uh, eight years. And so all of these things make it look, I think, the timeline for the PRC is looking less and less optimistic, right? That if they just allow the status quo to to continue, uh, Taiwan moves further and further away. How how popular is she in China? Is he Losing support, maintaining support. There have been a lot of troubles at home, including the COVID death rate and so on. How would you assess his strength right now, Mary Gallagher? Well, that's a great question. It's super hard to answer because the um, public opinion polling that's done in China is um, very heavily controlled. Um And even beyond just the control, I think that people understand in China, given the one-party system, that there's a right answer to a question about support. So do you support the government? There's there's no risk in saying you do. Uh, There's a big risk in saying that you don't, and particularly about about the question of Xi Jinping, him personally. Uh, Based on impressions that I have from friends in China and reading the news in China is that I think he was quite popular going into the pandemic, I think he gained popularity as China's initial handling of COVID seemed to be quite successful compared to other countries. Um, But in the last year, um, both the very, very strict lockdowns that happened in the spring of 2022 to to Shanghai in particular, um, and then of course the really chaotic um, departure from zero COVID in the last couple of months. I, I would I would guess um, it's kind of an educated guess that he's lost some degree of popularity. Hmm. Let me go to caller Peggy in Sebastopol. Hi, Peggy, you're on. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. Your your screener told me you did address this somewhat at the beginning, but I would like to go back to the balloon issue 
And, you know, the fact that the U.S. has a balloon surveillance program and, other, you know, uh, that isn't usually mentioned. So there's a context of a lot of balloons up there, and usually they're ignored. But because this one was cited, uh, it was – I guess I'm wondering why the U.S. chose to make this such a huge incident Mm. And why uh, the fact that uh, we've got our own balloons up there isn't mentioned and how China sees this reaction in the context of of those facts. Okay, Peggy, thanks. Well, Nason, first, why is this such a big deal? Is Peggy right in terms of an apples to apples comparison about balloon surveillance programs? Well, if we step back from balloons in particular, and we just think about surveillance, um, that I think any of us um, who don't have any connection to you know that that world of spycraft um, can fairly safely presume that both countries have very extensive surveillance programs um, that involve all sorts of things, but including satellites um, and things that are maybe closer to the ground. We are learning in real time about what exactly this balloon program on the part of the Chinese uh, civilian military uh, complex um, looks like. And it's plausible that uh, we have um, similar uh, uh, types of um, whatever we want to call them, bigger balloons or aircraft, even airships. Um, There does seem to be something a little bit new about the uh, way in which this particular balloon came so close um, that people from the ground in the U.S. could see it. Uh, we're not hearing reports of you know Chinese farmers in Hunan province looking up and seeing big American balloons. Um, so I think there is potentially something new there, and there's some legal aspects to that in terms of you know sovereignty of the skies. But I think the much bigger point here is just the very obvious you know, political point that when people in a country can see um, a balloon like this uh, of another country that we have a rivalry with, that is necessarily going to create a firestorm. Um, And I think, uh, you know, the administration has been remarkably restrained um, in its rhetoric and even in its actions um, with respect to this. There have been people um, in our political discourse, uh, maybe especially certain members of Congress who have engaged in, I think, pretty irresponsible rhetoric. But the administration, I think, has done basically what you would do to be most um, mm-hmm. moderate and reasonable within political constraints on the U.S. This is not something that they could have ignored. Um, the last thing I just want to say here is that ultimately, I think what is most significant about this is not how we surveil them or they surveil us. What is most significant is that Just at the moment when both sides were about to have this meeting that both sides clearly wanted and they thought would be beneficial in stabilizing a a relationship that had gone off the rails, something as simple as this has completely derailed that. And I think we should all take some um, note of a concern over how easily um, this initial steps towards stabilizing the relationship was blown off course. (laughs) We're talking about how... U.S.-China relations are strained at the moment, and the issues that have defined the relationship between the two most powerful nations in the past. Professor Gallagher, one of the other major contentious issues has been China's human rights violations, and particularly the treatment of predominantly Muslim Uyghurs. 
Can you talk a little bit about the the sanctions that the U.S. has responded with to some of these violations, but also, you know, how this issue is affecting how the U.S. and, and China relate to each other? Well, I think the the discovery of the uh, re-education camps um, or whatever we prefer to call them um, around 2018 has really, I think, um, fundamentally, at least for, for many people who study China, fundamentally changed um, how we perceive the the government and the, the Communist Party. I think this decision to put people extra legally and involuntarily in camps, uh, separate children from their parents, um, basically prohibit any sort of uh, religious expression um, outside of the camps as well, I think really is bordering on, um, it certainly approaches a kind of cultural genocide. And um, I think when we use those types of words, then we really need to think carefully about what is our responsibility to that community in China? What can we do to persuade the Chinese government that this is the wrong approach to dealing what um, they saw as you know serious problems uh, of um, domestic terrorism? So far, in terms of what the U.S. has done, I would say the most significant is the Uyghur Forced Labor Act, which was passed last year and went into effect uh, I think in the the mid part of last year, which is a very significant change in the approach in terms of really making it difficult for um, companies that produce in China or that source from China, they really have now a very, very high bar to demonstrate that they don't have any forced labor um, in their supply chains. Um, and that, you know, that it's it's relatively recent and, and the enforcement, I think it'll be, It'll be important to see how it's enforced and how it's being enforced currently, but it's it's a game changer in terms of putting pressure on companies, and then mm. by you know by in turn putting pressure on the Chinese government. Let me go to caller Joyce in San Francisco. Hi, Joyce, you're on. Yes, hi. Um, I'm intrigued by this conjoined twins analogy that was made. Um, given uh, what is going on in Hong Kong and in China right now, I was curious as to. Um, whether that is an indicator of, you know, what is maybe in store for Taiwan. Um, I was uh, mm. in uh, both Taiwan and Hong Kong and in China in the early 90s. And I do know that there is a lot of ta- Taiwanese industry in the Pearl River Delta. Um, and I was just wondering what the impression was in terms of what how China wants to handle what they call these sort of rogue territories. Yeah whether they're interested in, in just imposing sovereignty or with Taiwan because of the economic tie, would it be a more an, an amicable sort of hmm. um, outreach by them? Mary Gallagher, can I get your take on that? I think previously the the idea of um, Hong Kong as an example for what would happen to Taiwan in the future uh, was was really the the main way that the PRC presented these these issues, and it was this idea of um, one country, two systems, and so that Hong Kong would, you know, it came back to China in 1997, reverting from British uh, sovereignty, and then, um, you know, was going to have 50 years where its political and economic systems were going to be uh, respected, and that has unraveled over the course of the last uh, 10 years or so because of 
some reneging on the part of the PRC government in terms of um, promises for political reform in Hong Kong and uh, greater uh, democratization for Hong Kong voters. And, um, and of course, more recently in 2019 with the protests, which turned quite violent, um, using that as a reason to completely crack down on on Hong Kong and um, and really end what I would say is is ending this kind of respect of of one country two systems. So that's no longer a solution for Taiwan. Um, Ty it's not believable uh, in the first in the first instance. I think also it would be quite difficult for the PRC to absorb a democratic Taiwan. Um, I think it would demonstrate to people within China that democracy is nothing antithetical to Chinese people. Taiwan people have had very good experiences with democracy since the 1990s. Um, and I think that would be quite a dangerous example for, um, for the PRC to give their own people. We're talking with experts on China, Mary Gallagher and Nathan Mabubi. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And let me go to caller Yogi in San Jose. Hi, Yogi, you're on. Hi. Yeah, hi. I'm wondering if uh, I'm worried if the U.S. would lose interest if there was no semiconductor industry in Taiwan. If the U.S. would lose interest in Taiwan if there was no semiconductor industry there? Yeah. Ah. Uh, your thoughts on that, Nason Mabubi? Thanks, Yogi. Clearly, I don't think that that would be the case. I think there are all sorts of reasons um, why the U.S. is interested in Taiwan um, and has been uh, since um, even the earliest days of the normalization of relations between the U.S. and China um, when Congress passed the Taiwan Relations Act. Of course, a lot has changed in the past 40 years. And among the things that has changed is that Taiwan has gone from being a brutal authoritarian dictatorship, um, as bad, if not worse, than what we saw in China, to being one of Asia's most vibrant democracies with an innovative um, economy that includes um, world-leading uh, uh, innovation and um, status in the field of semiconductors. And so as we look at Taiwan now, there is a lot uh, that goes into our support. Of course, there are some people who are particularly concerned about the semiconductor industry in Taiwan and that um, it should not fall into Chinese hands in the way that they phrase it. But I would be very hesitant to say that that is the only or even the main reason um, why the U.S. is supportive of Taiwan. All of that said, um, I do think it's important to emphasize that the basic principle that the U.S. has approached um, over the past 40 years has been to avoid war between China and Taiwan, to avoid any kind of military confrontation and the question we have to ask ourselves now is whether that is still our goal to preserve a peaceful equilibrium in the Taiwan Strait, or if our goal is somehow to push Taiwan towards independence or to make Taiwan clearly um, connected to the U.S. in a very formal way. Um, if it's the former, that may lead to a certain set of policy ideas for what to do now. And if it's the latter, it's another set of policy ideas. But I think we do have to think about that in a very hard-headed way going forward. Nathan, one other thing I just wanted to bring up were the Americans that are being unlawfully detained in China. What is going on with that? How is the administration trying to respond? 
Well, this has been something that has, I think, been a um, thorn uh, in the relationship for at least uh, the past uh, six to seven years in a accelerating way. Um, of course, we're all very familiar with the detentions of the two Michaels from Canada, Michael Kovarig and Michael Spavor, um, who were both uh, apprehended in China as a sort of very clear retaliation um, for the Canadian uh, arrest of the daughter of the CEO of uh, Huawei, uh, Meng Wanzhou, at the U.S.'s insistence. And then there were all these other uh, cases around that time of um, many of them Americans of Chinese descent, but not exclusively, um, who were detained in various ways. Um, I, I think this is the kind of thing that uh, Secretary Blinken would have very much have wanted to talk to Chinese counterparts about. Um, I don't think we are at the stage of some kind of, you know, hostage diplomacy like we have with some other countries, uh, mm -hmm. including Iran and maybe even North Korea. Um, but it is the kind of thing that the two sides would want to talk about. And um, that's why I think uh, hopefully um, this kind of a meeting um, will will uh, materialize in the near future, um, beginning with the sidelines of the Munich Security Conference and then maybe um, another effort at sending Secretary Blinken to China. There's a timeline on it because, you know, once we have another round of tensions over a House speaker visiting Taiwan or even a House Select Committee on China going to hold a public mm -hmm. hearing in Taiwan, um, the timeline will get constricted again. But until those things happen, it would probably be very productive to have uh, this meeting be back on the books. Yes, just 30 seconds for your thoughts, Mary Gallagher, in terms of how we stabilize. We're hearing Blinken is considering a meeting with China's Foreign Minister Yi, Wang Yi at the Munich Security Conference. What do we do? I think it's a good idea for, you know, at some point a, a meeting to happen. I mean, on the sidelines of a of a conference, I think is is probably good because I think it lowers the expectations and the stakes a little bit. I think it's interesting that at least from what I'm reading from Chinese uh, commentators and also from the Chinese, um, the government's own statements, um, talking about this as uh, a result of polarization in the U.S. Um, and the you know that Biden was sort of forced into a more kind of, you know, uh, he took a stronger line than he needed. I think that's a mistake. I think they really need to recognize that this is a bipartisan issue mm. in the United States. Fascinating. Well, Mary Gallagher of the University of Michigan, Nasa Mabubi of University of Pennsylvania, thank you both and thank you listeners. This is Forum. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.